Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. Today we're looking at 2 Kings chapters 2 through 5 and a little bit of 2 Chronicles 21 and 2 Kings chapter 8. Interesting the way the chronological Bible has chosen to do this. I, it, it confused me at first, but I think I understand the point they're making. Um, 2 Kings 8, 16 through 22 is a summary of Joram's reign. And then we go through all this stuff with Elisha, and then we get to 2 Chronicles 21, which is the parallel passage. So many, many, many chapters later. And I think what they're trying to communicate is that all these stories of Elisha take place during Jehoram's reign. So they're just saying, here's the summary at the beginning, here's the summary at the end, and here's all the stuff that happened in between. And here's the good stuff. Yeah, so I think that's kind of what they're trying to do. Um, I'm not sure, but that's what they've done. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll jump right in. The majority of our conversation will be about Elisha. We do say bye to Elijah tonight. Um, he is one of two uh, characters in Scripture who does not die. Um, and I don't mean that he dies and comes back. I just mean he doesn't die. Or maybe he does. Depends how you understand the story. <laughs> Um, the other one who does not die is just a few sentences earlier on. We've already encountered him. Does anybody remember who that was? Enoch. Yeah. Enoch. He walked with God and then God took him. <laughs> um, so uh, Elijah is another one who is, to all, to all appearances, doesn't, doesn't appear to die. There's a weird story about Moses, and there's a reason I bring this up. We'll see this as we go. In that Moses does die. We know that. He dies as he's on the mountain looking over the promised land. And it says that when he dies, a couple of interesting things happen. One is he dies and he's not actually tired or old, which is strange because he's 140 years old. Um, but it says basically he's not worn out. God preserved his body. So he actually died feeling like a young man, which is kind of awesome in some ways. Um, second thing we learn is that God himself buries Moses, which is awfully cool. <laughs> There is something about that, that that shows a lot of honor, right? And the third thing we learn, oddly, in the New Testament is that there's this battle between Satan and uh, Michael over Moses' body. Um, and that Satan wants to take it and Michael gets it. So nobody knows what that's about or why Scripture even tells us about that. When we get to the New Testament, we'll speculate with the best of them. But the reality <laughs> is nobody knows. It's a weird sort of point to make written by one of the weirdest books in the New Testament, which is not the book of Revelation, it's the book of Jude. That book, for a short book, has some of the strangest passages in it, that being one of them. And now we've gone off on a rabbit trail, so let's come all the way back a few thousand years, back to Elijah. And that was without Mark. What's that? That was without Mark. Yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, but Elijah has some similarities to Moses uh, in a lot of ways. And throughout the New Testament, they'll often refer to the two primary components of Scripture as being Moses and Elijah. So they'll talk about how Moses is kind of the law and Elijah is the prophets. And they kind of refer to those as kind of two, two pinnacle moments. And there's a surprising number of things about Elijah's life that are similar to Moses's. Just, I mean, if you look through some, some somewhat superficial things, but even the fact, the story we talked about a few weeks ago where Elijah goes back to the mountain where Moses met with God and he meets with God there. Um, and you have a, an echo of the story where Moses says, just show me your glory. And God says, well, hide in the cleft and I'll pass by. And in this case, Elijah doesn't ask for that, but God basically says, hide in this cleft and I'll pass by. So there are some echoes about it. 
And even the fact that Moses' body is taken and God buries him, there's a sort of some sort of weird reason for some special care about the way Moses is preserved or not preserved or whatever. Same thing with Elijah. His leaving is weird. Um, and um, when we get all the way over to the book of Revelation, I'll actually tell you one very interesting speculation about why that may be, um, that there may be a special purpose for Moses and Elijah still to come. They do show up, by the way, in the New Testament, which is in itself very weird. <laughs> I mean, they actually show up like as physical, tangible people, which is odd. Briefly, they don't say anything, but they seem to actually be there. Um, and, uh, and then Revelation has maybe a special place for them. So there may be some connection there and all that. But all that is to say, uh, not much, except it was an interesting sort of departure. Okay, so back to Elijah. Uh, one thing I did want to mention, we had some speculation from me. We were trying to figure out where Mount Seir was last or two weeks ago because there was a battle that was going on. That's these kings over here, Ammon and Moab, they teamed up with Mount Seir. And a lot of maps say that Mount Seir is here in the middle. And I was kind of trying to figure out how that could be. I looked a little bit further. And I will say, just to briefly pat myself on the back, which I don't do often. Um, <laughs> but I will now. And it will be embarrassing. Um, but no, I will say that I did mention possibly Mount Seir. I wonder if it's Edom because of the way they talked about it as being a brother to uh, Jacob. Because that's what Edom was. Well... After I looked into it more, I found out that a lot of commentators think Mount Seir is Edom, in fact. And that does make more sense that Ammon and Moab and Edom were teaming up to fight. So I just wanted to mention that, and that's, that's the map. Again, this is the, kind of how things stand at this point. You've got Judah and you've got Israel, and you, they're surrounded by not really friendly uh, people at the moment. Um, what we do have to tie it up historically, we started to see they're being attacked from various places, from Syria and from all these places. What's happening, what's beginning to happen as we get to this stage of our history here, right around the death of Elijah, and we start getting more and more attacks from the surrounding areas, is we're starting to see the rise of Assyria. So there's a number of what we would call sort of uh, dominant worldwide kingdoms. That, that they're not quite worldwide because you've got places like China, which are still pretty much untouched by what's happening over here in the Middle East. But, but you've, got, you've got these huge worldwide dominations. And you can argue it starts with Israel, that Israel was a global power, right? They had these trade routes all across the place. They were as global as anybody then. It starts with Egypt before that, but Egypt's so up and down, it's a little hard to tell where they are. But, but, start, but after Israel, you have Assyria. And Assyria is going to ultimately be responsible for conquering and kind of destroying Israel. Not Judah, but Israel, the northern kingdom. Judah will hang in there for a while until Babylon takes over Assyria and has their turn at conquest. And they're the ones who will basically destroy Judah. So what we're starting to see in all the little squabbles that you're going to hear about over the next several weeks and months... They're all part of Assyria, kind of, and other, other countries fighting against Assyria and, and trying to get some dominance against Assyria. And even some of the reasons that some of these people try to take over Israel so they can get a foothold to fight against Assyria, who's coming from the north. And ultimately, everybody loses. Assyria conquers everybody. And one of the ways they do it is by being completely and totally brutal. So uh, there's different sort of approaches that different global dominators have. And... Assyria is known as one of the most brutal. And that when they conquer people, they do not, they're not gentle and they don't have a lot of patience. And they're famous even, you'll see this, I mention this because you'll see this come up in the prophets a little bit later, they'll re reference this. 
as we move forward. But for example, the Assyrians, what they used to do when they conquered a, a nation or, or even if it was just a large city, what they would do is they would actually put hooks through the nose of the prominent people and actually parade them through the main streets of whatever place they'd conquered so that everybody could see they were literally you know, hooked like fish. I mean, just, just being led and in a kind of a chain. Uh, they would just lead them through, parade them through. You'll see a reference to that. One of the prophets actually talks about that a metaphor of that for people who are not following God, that they become enslaved and the hooks are put through their noses <laughs> and, and are led astray. Um, so that's what that map's about. Sorry, my page turned on its own. There's a guy named Shalmaneser III of Assyria, and he's the main guy historically who's starting the campaign, and he's probably working on it right now. We won't run into him today, but just as we talk about everything that's going on with Elisha, just be aware. Shalmaneser III is doing everything he can to come down from the north and start just wiping out everything in his path. It's kind of amazing that Judah survives, and again, we'll, we'll get to that. It's a God thing, um, because otherwise he pretty much just takes over everything. All right, just a little bit of, little bit of where we are historically. Uh, this is a little bit better chart than I was showing you before, so I decided to steal someone else's chart um, that I didn't have to do so much editing on. Um, this is, uh, so we had Ahab. Remember that, 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 so this is Israel, this is Judah. So remember that Ahab was the, is kind of like the worst king ever. He's the epitome of evil. Um, Jeroboam is like, one tier down from Ahab. He's the one that everybody's compared to, and Ahab's the only one who's worse than Jeroboam. Jehoshaphat's a pretty good king, but he has this allegiance that he makes with Ahab, um, and it only occurred to me as I was looking through things today, remember how we talked about that we, you get into this weird naming thing that happens where you have Jehoram and Joram, by the way, who were both called the same thing. We only call them by two different variants of their name to make it clear to us. But at the time they were king, they were both called Joram or Jehoram, whichever variant was there. It was like Dave and David, right? So they were the same name. And more confusing, Jehoram's son Ahaziah has the same name as this Ahaziah. Well, it only occurred to me why this is. It's because this alliance made these guys family members. Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, actually marries one of Ahab's daughters. So they have family names. That's why their names become similar, because they actually start naming after the same people, right? I mean, it's entirely possible this Ahaziah is named after granddad. And it's not just an accident that they have the same name, because they are now family. They're now actually related to each other. And you'll see that in what we're about to read here in just a second. So this is where we are. We're right in this area here, where we confusingly have two Jorms, um, or for a little bit, Ahaziah and Joram. Uh, Jehoshaphat actually has just died, so it's got to be just the two Jorabs, I guess. And the other Hazai. Okay. Uh, so 2 Kings 8, 16 through 22. In the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, began his reign as king of Judah. He was 32, year old, two, 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab. So it's telling us that Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, was married to Ahab's daughter. And that probably, remember Jehoshaphat got in trouble for making treaties. That's probably why. Probably wasn't Jehoram's choice to marry Ahab's daughter. It's probably Jehoshaphat's choice to have him marry Ahab's daughter. It was probably part of the treaties they, they created. 
let's see. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. In the time of Jehoram, Edom rebelled against Judah and set up its own king. Remember that Edom didn't have a king. We talked about that. They had generals, they didn't have a king, and they were subject in tributes to Israel. Well, they rebelled and they set up their own king. So Jehoram went to Zair with all his chariots. The Edomites surrounded him and his chariot commanders, but he rose up and broke through by night. His army, however, fled back home. To this day, Edom has been in rebellion against Judah. Libna revolted at the same time. It's telling us two things. It's telling, well, three things. It's telling us that Joram's not a great guy. He did not do a good job. He's one of the not good kings of Judah. <laughs> and it's partly because of his influence, because he's connected to Ahab's family. And, but because of God's promise to preserve a remnant of David's line, he doesn't allow Edom to destroy Judah at this moment or later Assyria. Um, and so he's able to win. But it's not a, it, it doesn't paint it as a really you know, glorious victory. It's just kind of like he manages to escape by the skin of his teeth and, and his army flight flees home. And he's, but nonetheless, he survives. And, but there's these rebellions going on. Let's see. Do you have Second Chronicles 21 next? Mm -hmm. Okay. Jehoram was 32 years old. I guess they do the summer here as well. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, because of the covenant the Lord had made with David, the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David. He had promised to maintain a lamp for him and his descendants forever. Okay. And now we go back to 2 Kings 2, or in your chronological Bibles, that's still forwards. Right? Is that where we are, Second Kings 2? Cool. So when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, how's that just for a way to start this story? So by the way, this was about to happen. I think it's said this way because it's something that everybody knows, wouldn't it be? I mean, if you're telling a story about a prophet who's already well-known, everybody knows that he got taken up a whirlwind. If that's not a story you know, you don't know about Elijah, Right? So I think it's that, that's why it says it that way. It's like when this thing that we all know happens was about to happen, here's how it happened. So when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elisha and Elijah were on their way from Gilgal. And you guys all remember Elisha, right? He's the, the farmer or rancher, whichever, that Elijah ended up, uh, God provided really for Elijah because Elijah was starting to feel isolated and alone and tired. Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied. So be quiet. So what, 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 what's the sense? Because this story is going to keep going like this for a little bit. What, what, what sense can you make of the scenario here? Everybody's reacting a little oddly. Elijah says, Stay here. Elisha says, never. Other prophets say, you know, he's going away. And Elisha says, shut up. <laughs> so what's happening here, do you think? How do the other prophets know that Elijah's going to be taken up? Well, that's that? one of the things that's happening here, is that apparently everybody knows that Elijah <coughs> is about to leave. Oh. And what's happening here is it's emotional for everybody. And everybody's reacting emotionally. The story doesn't make sense unless you allow everybody in this story to be human, right? So Elijah knows he's about to go away. Elisha knows Elijah's about to go away. And apparently, 
many of the other prophets know Elijah's about to go away. Now, whether they know the nature of it, do they just think he's going to die? Do they know he's going to get taken up in a whirlwind? We don't know. But we know he's going to get taken away. And we know the day is now. It's like it's going to happen. Why would prophets know this? Because it was a prophecy, right? That seems obvious. Somebody somewhere, maybe Elijah himself, said, hey, guess what? Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be taken. And at that point, the story begins to make sense. Because there's, there seems to be a desire in Elijah. <laughs> I love that ringtone. There seems to be a desire in Elijah to go through this alone. And Elijah's always been a little bit of a loner, right? Even when he, I mean, let's be honest. Even when he was feeling isolated, he was kind of talking himself into, he was the guy who was like, there's nobody else. I'm the only guy. And so it kind of makes sense. You're going to die or you're going through, there's some people that are like that. He just doesn't want Elisha, he doesn't, maybe he doesn't know exactly what it's going to look like. And so he's like, you know, Elisha, I'm really not that keen on you being with me. But maybe he's also trying to make it easier for Elisha. Maybe he's like, look, it's time to let me go. So I'm going to go over here. And Elisha is responding like someone who's been mentored by someone he loves. And he's like, are you kidding me? I'm going to be with you till you're gone. I am not going to leave you for a second. So that's kind of the battle between them. And then the prophets are coming alongside, and everybody just likes to be in the know, is all I can figure. So they're just kind of like, hey, did you know? Or maybe they're like, why are you following him around? Don't you understand he's going to go? And Elijah's like, yeah, I get it. Quit talking about it. I don't want to talk about it. Right? Which is kind of a normal emotional response. He's just like, I know it. I don't want to talk about it. You may think this is a glorious thing. You may think this is a great moment. This is my friend. I don't want to talk about it. I'm aware of it. So be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied. So be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two men walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. I think this is almost like a hush, right? You've got 50 prophets there watching. They know something's about to happen. It's like they're standing back. Elisha's just like, you know what? I'm with you through this all. Now there's, again, a couple ways to see it. One is that Elijah wants to do this alone. Another is that he's sort of testing the loyalty of Elisha, but I don't quite understand why he would. I'm not quite sure where that gets us. But something he says later makes that a possibility, that there is something about this. Remember when it was kind of weird when Elijah first went to Elisha, and Elisha was like, well, first I need to go do the, I need to go, what, sacrifice my sacrifice. oxen, right? And Elijah's like, what have I done to you? Do whatever you want. And there's, it's sort of a weird moment. It's like, He's pushing Elisha to make his own decisions, in a sense. There may be some of that here. In other words, he knows that Elisha's about to take his mantle, but he's not going to force it upon him. Right? Elisha has to make that choice. And we'll see that several times. And maybe this, this whole sort of routine of, I'm going over here, are you, you stay here. And he's like, no, I'm not staying here, I'm going with you. You know, well, I'm going over here now. Okay, then I'm going over there too. Well, now I'm going over here. Okay, I'll be there. You know, maybe some of that is giving Elisha also opportunities to say, you know what? I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. I don't want your mail. It's rough. Now I've actually seen what you do. It's kind of a hard job. 
I'm not really sure I want it. But he doesn't say that. And so we'll move on. So this is kind of a moment. You know, now you have the 50. They're all standing at a distance, and they've stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. And the water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Is this necessary? <laughs> it's cool. It is very cool. I'm not there. Moses. Moses can do it. I it can. is absolutely a Moses echo. Yep, it's absolutely a Moses echo. It is interesting that even we talk about crossing the Jordan as a, an analogy for passing over into another life, right? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I don't know if we got that from this or I don't know, but they, you know, they are crossing the Jordan. It's a very definitive movement, and the other 50 don't do it. It's just Elijah and Elisha. And um, it is important because this cloak becomes important. The cloak is literally a mantle. This is what it means to pass on the mantle to someone. So there is something about the cloak that is descriptive of the office, the position of being the prophet. And so he's using that, and he strikes the, the Jordan, and he's crossing over. And that's how they like showed it back then? How they showed what? Like passing on. Like they would actually use the coat. I don't know. It's definitely how they're going to – it's definitely that way here. Whether there's a precedent for that, I don't know. Okay. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? This just feels like a human moment to me. He's just like, you know, but, but look, at, look at what a great human moment too. It's not like, hey, I'm about to go. Can you do me a favor? <laughs> it's, it's what can I do for you before I leave? I think Elijah's kind of looking forward to whatever's coming. He is tired. We've seen that. I think he's been tired ever since the mountain, you know? I think it's, he's, been, he's still been working, still been doing what God called him to do. We've seen him a couple other times pop in and address the king and do what he needed to do. I think he's tired. And I think he realizes he's leaving Elisha with a lot. <laughs> and being a prophet, he knows things are going to get worse, I think, even, right? So I think he's like, what can I do for you? What gift can I give you? What do you want? And Elisha's answer is interesting because, again, I think it's part of that. He has to make a choice. Does he want what Elijah had? And his answer, I don't think, is greed. There's one way to read this which sounds like he's greedy for power. I don't think that's it at all. I think what he's saying is, I, I, I think he's trying to assure Elijah, and I'll read it in a second, but I think he's trying to assure Elijah, I will do the job. I will take it, and I will do it so well. And if you'll allow me, I'd like to do better than you. Not, not because you couldn't do it, but I'd like you to bless me so I can do even more. Because that's what you want, right? I don't think this is a power thing or anything like that. And this is what he says. Tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? And he says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. He doesn't mean that's hard for me to give. He means you're, you're choosing a tough thing. You are saying yes to this job. And you're saying yes to this job with twice the commitment, essentially. <laughs> do you, I hope you understand. You're asking a hard thing. Not for me to give, not for God to give but recognize this will be hard. And I think he's, he's acknowledging Elisha knows it will be hard. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As near as I can tell, Elijah is simply either doing one of two things. Either this is that where that whole testing came in, the whole loyalty thing. Do you really want to be here? Do you really want to stick with it? It's one more opportunity to change your mind. Turn around, cross the door back the other way. I can part it for you if you want. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> 
turn around and go back home and don't watch me leave and you don't have to do this. It's very similar to me to the go back, sacrifice your oxen. What have I done to you? You know, I think he is saying that. If you stick around, that's what's going to happen. If you don't want it, I'm not going to make you do it. <laughs> right? And in some ways, he's putting it on God. Because who's really in control of whether Elisha sees where, God, where Elijah goes? God. God is. Yeah. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together. And I love that, too. It's like they have this conversation. And then it's not like something happens right away. Right? This is, this is how it happens in real life, too. Right? I sat by my mom's bed for a long time. You know, she didn't, she didn't die at the moment that I thought she was going to die. You know, it took a while. And, and I just get this sense. They're just, they're just talking. Now they're just friends. They're just waiting. God's going to do something. So as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. I think it's relevant that Elijah does not go up in the chariot. I don't know why it's relevant, but I just want to make that point because it's an easy mistake to make. It doesn't say he goes up in the chariot. It says the chariot appears and separates Elijah and Elisha and Elijah goes up in a whirlwind. So he's literally picked up by a twister and carried into heaven. And the chariot's purpose seems to be to force Elisha to let go. Right? right? Elisha's like, I'm going to go wherever you go, and I'm not going to go until God drags me away. Until wild horses literally get in the way. And God's like, here's some fiery horses. Now you're, you're, you're separated. You've got to let them go. You've got to let them go. And Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father. Interesting choice of word, right? This is his mentor. This is the man that he sees as his father. My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. I mean, he's amazed by everything. He's like, Elijah's going, and look, there's some chariots <laughs> and horses on fire. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and he tore it in two. That's a typical act of mourning. For the Israelites, it's just, he's more, so the first thing he does is mourn. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him. So this is interesting. Elijah gets picked up by the whirlwind and happens to drop his cloak. I think it's kind of interesting that the cloak doesn't, I mean, God could do anything he wanted. The cloak doesn't like waft through the air and land on Elisha. Because here, once again, Elisha has to pick up the mantle. He has to make the choice. He could still walk away, right? He could, I think, in a sense, he could. I mean, he probably shouldn't, and it's good that he didn't. But I think in a sense, he could. The mantle's there, the cloak's there, Elijah's gone. Now he's alone. Now it's real. Now he has to do this job by himself, in a sense. And he does. So he mourns, but even as he mourns, he picks up the cloak. And he picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And he took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. This is an implicit moment between Elisha and God. Elisha does not say to God, he kind of asks the question, but he does not say to God, God, is this real? Do I really have the mantle? Are you with me like you were with Elijah? He asked God, where is the God of Elijah? What does he mean? Are you with me now? And what sign does he ask for? He doesn't ask for it. He just does it. He's like, I saw how we got over here. So if, if, I, if God is with me now, seems like I should be able to get back the same way. And he strikes the water and it parts. And now we see why Elijah probably did that. 
right? Because it gives him that moment. It gives him that sign. It gives him that way of, he crossed the Jordan with Elijah, and for a moment it was just them. And there was a respite. And neither of them are prophets, they're just friends. And then he takes the mantle, and he has to go back to the world. <laughs> He's got to cross the Jordan. And, but he does do it with God. He's not alone. Because he knows that the God of Elijah is actually with him. With the, and the 50 that are yeah. standing on the yeah. side. Right In fact, one of the things we'll see Elisha, about Elisha that is different from Elijah is Elisha does this interesting thing. He actually starts a school for prophets. Remember Elijah who always felt alone and who was like barely acknowledged the other prophets? Elisha goes the other way. He's like, I'm going to create prophets. <laughs> he, now, I don't know what it means to start a school for prophets, but God seems to approve of it. And he starts a school. It's called the Sons of the Prophets. And it's apparently something that he kind of begins. It's a position. It's an office. And it grows. In fact, it grows so much they have to get a new building. Right? That's how you know something's growing. And you've got to move to a new location. We'll see that story in a little bit. But I think that's one of the differences between Elisha. He actually does look at all those other prophets and go, I'd rather work with them. And I think there's a couple of other things he learned from Elijah, and I think we see it in the pattern of miracles that he does. He does things in a different way than Elijah would have. It doesn't mean Elijah was wrong, but I think it means that Elisha learned some of the, the drawbacks that we saw in Elijah when he felt like it was all on his shoulders, and then things didn't happen the way he wanted them to happen, and then everybody was kind of dependent on him, and even he himself ended up kind of thinking he was better than his ancestors. Elisha saw all that, and I think he learned from all that. Or he, he, he saw that from afar. He wasn't with Elijah during some of that, but. So it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. Now, again, yes, this also tells the prophets who are watching that the mantle has been passed, right? They're like, oh, look at that. He just did the Elijah trick. <laughs> the company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Look, they said, we, your servants, have 50 able men. Let them go and look for your master. Perhaps the spirit of the Lord has picked him up and set him down on some mountain or in the valley. So now they're, they're reluctant to let him go, right? They're like, it's all well and good that you have the spirit of Elijah on you, but Elijah's really the guy we need. <laughs> we love you, but let's find Elijah. Well, I was wondering, too, like when he said that, I mean, maybe it was for him somewhat, but maybe it was more for them, too, watching. Like, sure. Where is the... Absolutely. I think it also is a way for him to say to them, the spirit of God is on me now. But, but they're like, let's go find him. Maybe we always know is it. I mean, let's be honest. We know the story as that God took him up in a whirlwind. But honestly, if you saw someone picked up in a whirlwind, would you assume they went to heaven and were never coming back? I mean, no. You'd be like, they're going to land somewhere. <laughs> they might go to heaven a different way. But I don't think the whirlwind is, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't. So it's a reasonable assumption on their part, yeah. right? Except that it's been prophesied. So there's a little bit, you know, there's a little bit of, of reluctance, I think. It's human reluctance. But Elisha is now, he's crossed. He's crossed over, so to speak. He's made that journey. He's seen Elijah go. He gets it now. And so he says, no. Elisha replied, do not send them. He's like, that would be just a dumb journey. But they persisted until he was too embarrassed to refuse. And again, I just love the human nature of this. He's like, really, it's okay. And they're like, no, let's go look. And he's like, I really don't think you should. And they're like, please. And at a certain point, he's just like, I don't want to make him feel stupid. This is just kind of embarrassing. Okay, fine. Go look for him. I know you're not going to find him, but okay, go look for him. So he said, send them. And they sent 50 men who searched for three days, but did not find him. And when they returned to Elisha, who was staying in Jericho, he said to them, 
I told you so. <laughs> he said to them, didn't I tell you not to go? It's like, yeah, that's kind of what I said. Yes, it's us now, guys, it's us. Elijah's passed the mantle on, it's us. And if you saw what I did at the Jordan, you can, you can count on me, I'll be here. And it's not just me, it's God. All right, so this is the passing of the mantle. And now we come to a series of stories about Elijah's miracles. And it was, as I was reading through them, it was amazing to me how many of them follow the same pattern. Now, there's a few that don't exactly, but even when the pattern changes, you can see the reason for the pattern changing. It's like you say, oh, okay, this even is more striking because the pattern changed. And here's the pattern. So really, I don't have two elements in the pattern. The first part of the pattern is someone comes to Elisha in desperate need. That's the first part of the pattern. It's always a desperate need. And they come to him. They typically initiate with him. He doesn't walk around going up to people and saying, you need my help? Let me help you. <laughs> no, they always come to him. All right? And then what happens is he proposes a solution. They come to him and he proposes a solution. And the solution is always miraculous. And the miracle always involves the following things. And they're really weird when you think about it, that it always happens this way. So the first thing is miracles always involve is some essential ingredient which is near at hand, some ingredient which is just right there, something that you could just pick up off the ground, something available, but something which seems completely small and irrelevant to the problem, but it's always part of the solution. And sometimes people resist that. They're like, how can this be? This is dumb. <laughs> this makes no sense. And it doesn't. That's the thing. It never makes sense. He, he almost never, there's one story again where you can kind of see a connection, but most of the time, the thing he selects, and even commentators will struggle. They'll be like, well, here's how maybe this was part of this miracle. And I'm like, no, no, I think it wasn't. That's the point. I mean, it was, it was not, you stop looking for a rational explanation, right? Sticks do not make iron float. We'll get there. So some essential near at hand ingredient, which seems small and irrelevant, Second thing is, he always he requires the person who's making the request to do something. Always. And usually to do something with this ingredient that they don't understand. And the third thing is, it's always as little work as possible on Elisha's part. <laughs> I mean, literally. If he can do nothing, and I don't think it's because he's lazy. I think there's other reasons for this. But if he can do nothing, he does nothing. When he can, all he does is give instructions. He'll say, go find this and do this with it. And that's it. So this is very different. You know, this is, not, this is not the kind of miracles we see in a lot of the rest of Scripture. Even Jesus doesn't do it this way. So I'm not saying this is better or worse. It's just the way Elisha does it for reasons. But almost every time, he does as little as he can get away with. Sometimes he has to do a little more, but he always does as little as he can. And then God performs a miracle. And I think part of what you see is that because he's using ingredients which make no sense, and asking the requester who feels powerless to do, the, to do the action. And because he steps back and does nothing, who gets the credit when it's all done? Right. So he is avoiding a number of the drawbacks that Elijah ran into during his moment of depression. There's no risk that everybody will be looking to him. They do anyway. It's kind of the irony. But there's no risk really that, that what he's doing inherently will cause them to say, ooh, he's amazing. Instead, it causes them to say, God's amazing. And he doesn't feel alone because he's having everyone else do the work, <laughs> right? It's not even like, it, he, he has all these other people doing things for him. And that's one thing you see. He's constantly bossing people around. But it's not because he's bossy. It's because he wants people to do it. He wants other people to make the choice. Now, 
Think about how he received his position and see the connections. How clear was God to him? I'm not going to force you to do anything. But if you will pick up that cloak, you'll be able to part the waters of the Jordan. But I'm not going to make you. You know, if you'll, if you'll sacrifice the ox and come back, you'll have an amazing life. But I'm not going to make you. All the way through Elisha's life, it was that way. It was God putting the choice in front of him and saying, position yourself. Put yourself in the place to see me work. And I'll work. And it's like Elisha just wants to teach everybody else the same thing. <laughs> and he does a lot of this in front of the sons of the prophets. You'll see that come up a lot. And that's basically his school. That's basically this group of, it's like the, the wizarding school, except it's prophet school. It's, it's all these people that he has gathered that are learning. And again, I don't even know what that means. Can he actually teach people to be prophets? I, I don't get that. I don't, I don't understand that exactly. Or is it that God says, here are the people that are prophets. Teach them how to trust me. Teach them how to, to follow me. Teach them how to, to, to not become proud. You know, whatever. So a lot of things he's doing, he's also doing for them. So they can watch him and say, oh, Wow, Elisha definitely didn't do that. <laughs> that was totally God. So as we go through these miracles, we're just going to walk through these stories. We're going to identify these, these essential four items. And you'll see. And you'll see a couple stories where it shifts up a little bit. Um, and, and I think we can see why. I think we'll be able to see why it shifts up here and there. All right. So this is, this is kind of the, the way it works. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt in it, saying, this is what the Lord says. I have healed the water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained pure to this day, according to the word Elisha has spoken. Okay, this is a really kind of a short story. A lot of these are just little short miracles he does. Let's break it down just a little bit, and then we'll come and look at these things. First thing is fascinating. There is actually a spring in Jericho today, which people believe has been around for thousands of years, and it is called Elisha's Spring. And this spring gushes forth at about a thousand gallons of water a minute. Wow. So this is not just a... Yeah, yeah, they call it Elisha's spring. It's a torrent. But here's the thing. Uh, It gushes at about a thousand gallons of water per minute and has a very, very sophisticated, but simple, uh, but I guess carefully planned is what I mean, but simple uh, structure of gravity irrigation channels. In other words, because it's, it's gushing at such a rate and, it, and it's kind of coming down into a valley, they've been able to create all these irrigation channels that basically water the entire Jericho region. So in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the drought, they've all got water and they've all got rich land and soil. And so you can see if this spring stops or is bad, it's actually killing life instead of bringing it, this is a desperate situation. The elders of the town are saying, this water is the only reason people live here, <laughs> and it's dead. It's producing death, right? And so this is the desperate situation they come to him with. Our town is dying because the water is dead. So let's walk through it. What is the ingredient near at hand, which seems small and irrelevant to the situation? Salt. Yes, exactly. So he says, bring me some salt. Yeah, salt. What's the action he requires the requester to perform? They have to get the salt in the bowl. They have to be willing to go get this meaningless item, this ingredient that's worth, and a bowl? This is a spring that gushes a thousand gallons a minute. A bowl of salt? Really? 
I don't care how much you want to claim the salt will purify water. It doesn't work like this. <laughs> it could, but not in those volumes. Not in those volumes, exactly. If there's a bacterial infection in a small well, it could work. Yes, but not at these volumes, right? And they know, I mean, even if they don't know the science, they're like, why should we bring you a bowl and a salt? It's upon them to choose to position themselves to see the miracle. Are they going to believe what Elisha says or not? He, notice he could get the bowl and he could get the salt. <laughs> right? He's not lazy. He's not unable. He knows where the bowl and the salt are. <laughs> He's like, bring me a bowl, bring me some salt. So they do. What is the minimal amount of work that he does? Yeah, he throws it in the water and he says, it's healed. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much it, right? He just throws it in there and says, it's healed. But he went into the spring and threw the salt into it. Almost, it's almost funny, too. He makes them do the work of getting the salt, and then he just throws it away. You know, it's kind of like, really? And then he just tells them it's healed. Do you think they knew right away? No. Of course not. <laughs> of course not. But it was. And it did purify the water. And that's the miracle that God did. The water's purified. So here's how it is. Elisha is not, he doesn't, he doesn't even hit the water with his cloak, you know? I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't stand there and make a big, long speech. He just says, he doesn't even utter a big, old, long prayer, does he? No. He's like, bring me the water. Bring, I mean, bring me the bowl, bring me the salt. All he does is throw it in and say, we're done. Yes, Meredith. Well, it is kind of interesting, too, like, because, like, just thinking about Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and, you know, they did that big, like, they had to do that big rigmarole and everything, and then their gods, like, needed so much and, like, everything, and I like the, the simplicity of this. It's like God doesn't need, you know, That's your right. blood or your son or your whatever. That's exactly you know, right. Or, That's exactly right. <laughs> and yet he does require them to do something. They are not just spectators. They're part of it. They're part of it. They came to him. They made the request. He's going to give them instructions. He's going to show them God's work. But they're going to get to be part of God's work. They're going to get to, like Elisha, they're going to get to pick up the mantle. They're going to get to be part of it. Uh, very brief side note, because I'm not sure it's, I mean, it's, it's clearly not here, but it's such a good picture for us when Jesus talks about us being salt, being like salt. And you think about the church being in a world that needs life and is full of deadness. And then if you introduce salt into the world, then it brings life. And that's kind of our job as a church, too. So I kind of like that. And things like that aren't usually accidents, even if they're not the main points. So, all right. A side note. Yeah. The Rio Grande floats less than 1,000 gallons per minute when it gets low. That's, Just for a, a scope That's of, pretty cool. <laughs> you know. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. Now, this is... The one my daughter asked me about. This is a weird one. Believe it or not, I think it kind of, there are some changes, but I think it kind of follows the same pattern. And there are some things that make this maybe a little bit less troubling, but we'll just read it first so you can all feel the same sort of shock and confusion that my daughter feels when she reads this story. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of town and jeered at him. Get out of your baldy, they said. Get out of your baldy. Literally, the word is bald head. That's literally the word. Get out of your bald head. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel. And from there, he returned to Samaria. Okay, it's a weird story. <laughs> and you can read it one way, which says that Elisha is just easily offended. And they called him bald. And so he called these bears out. And these bears killed 42 boys. But let's, let's 
break a few things down. First of all, the number 42 should strike you. Not that it's a number, but it's a big number. This isn't like a few boys in the neighborhood who are coming out and, and jeering at them. 42 mermald, that means there's probably more of them is the implication. That's a lot of people coming at you from Bethel. Number two, boys is pretty misleading. You know who else is called a boy? Joseph. You know what age Joseph is when he's called a boy? Same word in scripture. 30, 32. <laughs> okay. Uh, Solomon is called a boy when he's 21. So boy is young man means young man and young man is even questionable when you get to 32 so this isn't this isn't don't think you know little boys that's not what's <laughs> happening here it's not like he called bears out on these little toddlers that were called him involved okay I, and that's important because that's a bad picture if that's what's happening <laughs> but no it's pretty clear actually well, that this the yeah <laughs> for for some reason, though, it, it, but, but it's pretty clear this word refers to, to youth, young men. Second thing is, there's 42 of them, and I suspect this is an army or a gang. There's every reason to suspect they may be armed, and I think there's every reason to believe they weren't just calling him names, they were threatening him. Yeah, I, I, I think Baldy implies a gang threatening and there's one more interesting thing about this. They, according to this translation, they say, get out of here, Baldy. But according to a couple other translations I looked at, the words they actually speak are, go up. Go up, Baldy. Now, there's a possibility, and I will acknowledge that, that I don't have, this is a little bit speculative. But go up is an interesting phrase, considering that's the way Elijah left. And what if they're saying to him, Go join your buddy. Go join. And Bethel, by the way, Bethel, we know, is a hot spot of idolatry right now. So these are probably worshipers of Baal or worshipers of some other false god. They're coming to Elisha, and perhaps they're saying, go with your mentor. We chased him off. Now we'll chase you off. Everybody knows they didn't chase him off, but that's how gangs work, right? We're responsible for that. Well, you know, terrorists too. We'll, take, we'll, take, we'll claim that action. So I think it is a threat. I think they are threatening him. Now, the other thing to notice is it does not say that Elisha called bears down upon them. What does it say? He cursed them. In other words, who does he leave it up to? God. That's what I think is important here, too. He just says, let God deal with you. In fact, he doesn't deal with them. This is, again, Elisha doing as little work as possible. I mean, really. He doesn't do anything with them. He says, God... I'm gonna, God's going to deal with you. You don't think we serve the real God. You're making fun perhaps of Elijah and me and my God. Well, may God deal with you. And then two bears come out of the woods. I think he's asking God to take care of them, specifically. The dog barks and the caravan keeps Yeah, I think it's specifically, yes, he's cursing them. He's saying God take care of them. But it doesn't say he told God what to do or how to do it. He just says, he, he said, God's going to deal with you. And then two bears come out of the woods. So well, in one sense. Curse seems, though, well, that's why I'm wondering if I'm strong. Because like, curse seems more like a stronger like thing than just like, okay, God, you deal with them. Not if he's laying a curse from the Lord. I don't think so. I mean, it is a judgment. He's expecting God will judge them. I think that's what the that's that's how I'm taking the meaning of the word curse here. Yeah. 
He's, he's, he's giving it to God to judge them. He's asking God to judge them. If you want to make it stronger, you can say he's asking God to judge them. I think that's fair, too. I don't think he did. I don't think he chose the bears. But I do think if you want to, if you want to follow it through with our little pattern, and this one is a little different, so I, I'm okay if you don't see the pattern here, but I will go ahead and play it out. Uh, the bears. Bears are not unusual in this part of the woods. They are near at hand. Now, they're not necessarily small and irrelevant. They're actually, you know, it'd be, if they were like gophers, that might be more interesting. But, um, but, well, here's the other thing. They're armed and 42 of them mauled. That's kind of pathetic on their part. It is. I mean, it is pretty good. Now, the other thing is mauled does not necessarily mean killed, if that makes you all feel better. Yeah. It does mean, I think what might be the main point is that they were scattered. Right? Now, some of them probably were killed. And, and 42 were injured. <laughs> but I think the point is it broke up this gang, this army, whatever it was. It broke them up. The bears came out. And you're right. Two bears to, to take care of this many. These are some, some big bears. I don't know why it specifically mentions. Oh, it's interesting. It doesn't say it in this translation. Other translations also make a point. Apparently, the word is actually female bears. Now, I don't know why that's relevant, necessarily. I don't, does anyone know about bears or female bears more ferocious, ferocious than male bears? Yeah, if you get so maybe the idea is Elisha's their cub, yeah. you know? Yeah. God, Elisha is God's cub, and so the, the female bears are, are, are out. Anyway, so it's bears. Uh, God is the actor entirely. Obviously, he doesn't ask any, there's no other requester. <laughs> In a sense, Elisha is the requester. Um, and God performs the action, and he leaves it to God or asks God to curse him if you feel like leaves it to God is too passive. I'm, I, I can accept that. And the miracle is that Elisha is safe. If we're reading this right, and it was an actual threat, and I think it was then the miracle is that Elisha's safe. More than 42 people came out to kill him, and he walks on. That's the bottom line. Can I just say, too, that it also affirms that the prophets obviously didn't walk around with head coverings because um, they wouldn't have known him at all. That's true. Mm -hmm. That's true. And there's no indication the prophets would have been wearing head coverings at this time, either. That actually makes a little bit more sense to me, too, like with the story with Elisha and the... Um, before, when like the army came after him, and then just oh, the fire. Yeah. For when, yeah, yeah, on the mountain, and then the fire burned him to a crisp. That's right. All right, Second Kings four. Is that where you are, are as well? <laughs> the wife of a man from the company of prophets cried out to Elisha. Not clear if the company of prophets is the same as the sons of the prophets, but I suspect it is. I suspect it is the same people. It's just two different terms for them. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets called out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Okay, this is um, heartbreaking but legal, right? Remember that the Old Testament law said this. If you are unable to pay your bills, you can go into bond you can be a bond servant. You can, your son, and, and the widow wouldn't be expected to do it. The sons would be expected to do it. And they could keep them as bonds until the year of Jubilee. So theoretically, it's a maximum of seven years. Problem is, as far as we know, Israel never celebrated the year of Jubilee, not once. Which is interesting. That of all the laws they choose to ignore, <laughs> you can kind of see why. People in power don't want to give up that, right? There is not an indication, I, I take it back, there is once. That's, how, that's why we suspect he didn't do it the rest of the time. There's a moment, I think it's Hezekiah, in fact, we'll find out. It might be, might be Josiah. One of the good kings actually does have a year of Jubilee. 
and it's like an amazing thing, but it seems to indicate they've never had one. And so Don't even this... Don't plant anything is a scary thing to say to the farmers. What's that? Don't plant anything. Yeah, I mean. right, yes. And so this, this, is, this is a problem. This is a lifelong, or until the credit's paid, which could be a lot, right? Well, even so the she's, other laws, I mean, besides the year of Jubilee, it was more of a providing for the people, not a, right. we're just going to take away. Right. Well, it's interesting that she doesn't have, apparently have anyone who can be their kids and redeem Correct. Um, yeah, I correct. Know, Maybe. 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 Um, if I was this woman, I'd have to go to Elijah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, and that's that's that that means right. The her husband either had no brothers or her brothers did not step forward, which is what they sh- were supposed to do mm-hmm. according to the law, right? Um, she has no brothers or her brothers didn't step forward, which also would have been according to the law. Like you said, a kinsman redeemer, her next, her next nearest kinsman who can afford to do it is supposed to do it. So either they're not willing to or she doesn't have anybody who can afford to. So she goes to Elisha because he's the leader of the company of them. And he, she says, what do I do? And Elisha replied to her. And, and here's the thing. I increasingly think as I read these stories of Elisha, again, tone matters, right? And we can't always read tone. But I increasingly think Elisha turns out to be more compassionate than Elijah, at least in appearance. I don't know how to say that. It's not fair. Elijah's a good guy. I think he was compassionate. But Elisha comes across more human and warm. So I tend to read these things as warm. You don't have to, but I think when he says things like, how can I help you? There's two ways to read it. One is, how can I help you? (laughs) Right? The other is, how can I help you? And that's how I think he, that's how he comes across as we go through the rest of these stories to me as a guy who really does want to help. So he says, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? So he's thinking, how can I help you? And he starts, he goes back to his tried and true formula. What's near at hand? Do you have any salt? Yes, yes. So, but he's not even going to assume she has salt because she's poor, right? He's like, what do you have? How can I help you? What do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said. Beat. Except, I love that. I love that, too, because it feels that way to her. She has nothing. But then she thinks, well, there's this, but this isn't going to do me any good. She says, except a small jar of olive oil. And when we say small jar of olive oil, the understanding is it's probably about this size. It's not for cooking. It's for anointing. It's for anointing. Exactly right. It's a small jar of olive oil for anointing. So they've managed to preserve that. But everything they need to eat, they've eaten. (laughs) They have nothing left. Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars. And as each one is filled, put it to one side. Okay. It's a crazy thing for him to say, right? You're going you're gonna to go collect. First of all, you need to go to all your neighbors and collect empty jars. There's nobody who can afford to redeem her, but does everybody have an empty jar? <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> but this is still kind of a hard thing for her a little bit, right? She has to go beg for empty jars. That's, that's not the easiest thing. And how do you explain that? I need an empty jar. <laughs> Why? Well, I'm going to pour oil, oil into it. You have enough oil to fill my jar? No, but I need it anyway. I mean, how do you explain this whole thing? I don't know. I just need empty jars. I'm going to the recycling plant. It's a school project. It's a school project. That's right. <laughs> well, and it, but it, it doesn't even seem like it would necessarily be like, yeah, I'm just going to the recycling thing. 
I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. And he is very specific. Don't ask for just a few. Well, no. He's not very specific. He gives her a hint, but he doesn't tell her how many. He says, go to all your neighbors. The idea really is get as many as you can. Isn't that the idea? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Get as many as you can. But notice how it's up to her how many that is. I'd love to be in one of those situations and know it'd be like showing up with like tanker trucks, you know. <laughs> but God said, I'm gonna go with But them. here's the thing, this is one of those things where the more empty jars you get and the more people that say no, even as you have some people that say yes, the harder it is to keep persevering at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Right? And after a while you're like, Well, I've got enough jars, this is gonna work anyway. <laughs> And you only got this much oil. Because, yes, he told me to pour oil and fill all the jars. And that makes no sense at all. And you got this much oil. Right? So this is, this, is, this is definitely a position yourself moment. This is a how much faith do you have moment. Yeah. Can you trust that God can do this? And, and, again, let's be honest. This is not something we would all immediately go, absolutely. I totally believe that God would take my little jar of oil and fill all these jars. I'm going to all my neighbors right now. It's tough. It's a bit of a challenge. All right. And as each one is filled, put it to one side. It's a challenge, but he does tell her what's going to happen, right? He's not, he's not being completely mysterious. I mean, he's, he's being crazy, but he's not being mysterious. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she left, uh, so let's see. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons, and they brought the jars to her. Now she does get her, she does get her sons to help, which I think is totally reasonable. Mm-hmm. Involved them in this. So they brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. And when all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there's not a jar left. And then the oil stopped flowing. This story makes it very clear. The amount of oil is entirely dependent upon the number of jars that she collected. If she collects more jars, she has more oil. If she collects less jars, she has less oil. That is clearly the way the story is laid out. The moment she says, I mean, and I, I love that too, bring me another one. She didn't say bring me another one. She's dancing around the house. She's giggling. She's laughing. Because this is amazing what's happening, right? She's like, bring me another one. And her son's like, darn, I wish we could. <laughs> and yet they clearly have plenty. We see from the rest of the story, they did a good job. They did get enough. Because, but he implied there's not a jar left. And then the oil stopped flowing. And I don't even know how that works. I mean, that's, can you imagine? Just doing that, pouring it. You pour, and, and you know you've got this much, and you pour, and you keep waiting for it to empty, and the jar you're pouring into fills up. And then you tip it back up, and you look, and there's still oil in there. So you go to the next jar, and the same thing happens again. And you look, and then pretty soon, you keep going, and they're like, there's none left. And you're like, oh, well, that's good, we're out of oil. <laughs> or maybe that little jar still had oil in it. There's just nowhere to put it, right? Yeah, so that, I guess that's probably... Okay. So she went and told the man of God. I'm sure she's excited, right? She goes to Elisha and she's like, this is amazing, thank you so much. And he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. That means they did good. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They can pay their debts and she never has to worry again. They're good. They're set. Um, so, what's the ingredient near at hand, which seems small and irrelevant oil. to this moment? Yeah, this little tiny, oh, I'm sorry, either way, empty jars or the little jar of oil. I actually should be the little jar of oil, I think would be good. But also the empty jars that she's supposed to collect. Either way, they seem like small, irrelevant things, right? What is she supposed to do? Go beg for empty jars, fill the jars, sell the oil, live off the oil. Those are all things she does. What's Elisha do in this story? 
Absolutely nothing except tell her what to do, right? I mean, he doesn't get a jar. He doesn't even give her a jar. Do you notice that? He's not even like, here's one to start you off. No, he's like, go ask your neighbors. Now, maybe he's a neighbor and maybe she comes to him. And if she comes to him, I bet he gives her, you know, 10 jars. But, but he's going to make her ask, isn't he? I mean, I really suspect that. I don't think he's just going to hand her a jar to get her started because he, he knows this is what has to happen. Yes, yes. Go close the door. Do this by yourself. <laughs> Do this by yourself. Yeah. It does prevent the people from seeing it because the other side is the screaming and the happiness. The neighbors sure. Might go get I mean, there may be a safety to... thing here too, right? That they're doing this in secret so no one will come take, take well, their jars of oil. I'm just saying idolatry. I mean, people are going to start worshiping her, the, the oil, <laughs> Maybe the so. jar or something. I Maybe mean, so. Yeah, so all he does is give instructions. And of course, the miracle is that the widow and the son are well provided. Sons are well provided for. That they're taken care of. All because of a little jar of oil. All because of some empty jars. And faith, though, to go get and the faith. jars. And Again, the he's oil. calling people. When they come with the request, what he does is he helps them grow in their faith. He calls them to faith. He calls them to trust God. Because ultimately, every time they sell another jar of oil or use a jar of oil, what are they remembering? Elisha? No. I mean, they're, they're grateful to Elisha for pointing the way, but they're remembering God. They're thinking, wow, God, this is amazing. Because essentially what it means when he says you have enough left to live on, God provided oil for the rest of their life. Essentially, right? One way or another. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. All right, let's go on. One day, Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. I love how, too, the stories just kind of, now we're like a totally different situation, right? The last story was a woman who had nothing. This is a woman who has everything, except we're going to find out there's actually one thing she's missing. One day, Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman who was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. And she said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof. That's not unusual, by the way, just for clarity. It's not like, let's make him sleep on the roof. Um, in the desert, it's actually very comfortable to sleep on the roof. So she's we're just going to make a room for him there on top of the flat roof. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in, the, put in it a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. So she's, she's, this is great. This is very generous. She's very nice. She, she's, not, she's, I think, genuinely just doing this to help him. The first Airbnb. Yes, exactly. yes, for free. So she's just, she's just like, you know what? He comes through a lot. She, she urges a meal on him. You know, it kind of says that. She urges him to take a meal with her. And then she's like, you know, he comes through a lot. Let's, let's just make this a place he can, can rest. Now, why does he come through a lot? That's an interesting thing, too. Because even though Elisha makes everyone else do the work, he's also not uh, sitting on his heels. He's traveling. He's meeting people. He's ministering. He's maybe finding prophets to bring back to the school of prophets. One day, when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. And he said to his servant Gehazi, call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood before him. And Elisha said to him, tell her, you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now, what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? He's like, you've been so nice to us. There's got to be something I can do. I have some influence. Is there something? And you're rich, right? So he's, he's, he's automatically reaching for big things, Right? She doesn't need oil. Doesn't need oil. <laughs> so he's like, what can I do? Can I talk to the king for you about something? Can I talk to the commander of the army? Are they picking on you? You know, what, what can I do? And she replied, I have a home among my own people. And I love this. 
What can be done for her? Elisha asks. So she says, I don't need anything. Elisha turns to his servant and says, what does she need? He's like, there's got to be something. She's just, she's being really nice. But you tell me, what does she need? And Gehazi said, she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. Wow, that's a big, that's a big promise. <laughs> and I, and, and uh, I'm trusting that not only did God tell him this would happen, because I don't think he would say it otherwise, but I'm also <laughs> trusting that God told him she wanted this, because that's also a big uh, promise. If it turns out she's like, really? No. <laughs> At first, yes. But as, as, she, as she goes on, you realize why she's saying no. Yes, at first it does look like she's saying, I don't want a child. No. She says, no, my Lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. She's just, she's, she's at that moment where she's living with the disappointment and she doesn't need more hope to be disappointed again. And he's just said something that makes no sense. Right? So she's like, don't, don't do that to me. But the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. Okay, this one's a little bit different, and it's partly because this is not the primary miracle. There's actually more to this story. But even in this first portion of the miracle, there's some things that are similar. So even though it's true that in... That in <laughs> so the ingredient near at hand is an old husband. Okay? Well, okay. Because he seems, in this case, irrelevant to providing a child. <laughs> He's too old, Right? I mean, what really. What science is that? What's that? I said, what science is that? <laughs> it's the implication that Gehazi says when he says her husband is old. The implication is she's not old. Which, by the way, is very possible. That she's not too old to bear children, but he is. And yes, I know, old men like Tony Randall have children forever. But they're, yeah. they're, it is possible for men to also become uh, sterile and barren. All right. And she hasn't yet. I mean, presumably they didn't get married a week before the... the Now, it's true that she doesn't specifically request this because she's reluctant to request it. It is a desire of her heart that she does not come to him with, and he sees it anyway. But notice this. Even though she doesn't come to him with the request, who actually initiates this relationship? She does. She does. Right? She doesn't make the request, but her generosity kind of opens the door. She comes to him. She's generous. She's giving him things. And he's like, how can I help you? And then he gives her the desire of her heart that she's reluctant to say. Now, actions performed by the requester, let's just say, you know what those are. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Song of Solomon. We can go back. If, uh, uh, Elisha's part in all this? Yes. Nothing. Just, just promises. Yes. Clearly, clearly. Clearly, he has a great desire to do something. He really, it, it is like he's trying to find what's the perfect gift, right? And she won't tell him, so then he asks Gehazi, and Gehazi like, does some research and finds out. You know, well, here's what I think she really needs. Um, so yes, he's clearly, he's doing a lot in one sense, but as far as actually making it happen, he just makes the promise, and she's kind of mad at him about that. And probably stays mad at him until she actually gets pregnant. Maybe even until she has the child. She gives birth. Yeah, because she's probably been down that road before, too. Well, later it indicates, too, that she's still kind of yes. is not we'll, we'll, sure about the whole We'll thing. see that in the next part of the story here in a second. And the miracle is that she gives birth to a son. Okay, but this story doesn't end here. The story continues. 
the child grew. And one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers. And he said to his father, my head, my head. And his father told a servant, carry him to his mother. And after the servant had lifted him up and carried him up to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. Most commentators think he had heat stroke, which could happen if you're young and you're working out in the field, you would get that headache and then you might die, especially if they didn't know exactly what was going on. But it could be anything, right? We don't know. But he dies. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God. So where does she put him? On the roof. On the roof, in the room they keep for Elisha. This is interesting because even as she, as we're going to find out, is mad and disappointed and not full of faith, that's an interesting place to put him. I think it says that somewhere in the back of her mind, she's hoping. She's thinking, you know, I heard a story once that Elisha's mentor once raised us a boy back to life. Remember? Elijah has done this. Maybe Elisha can do it. But she's not completely sure because she doesn't prepare him for burial and she doesn't lay him in his own bed and she doesn't start doing the things you would do for mourning. She lays him in Elisha's bed. Now, maybe it's also just because when Elisha shows up, she wants to say, look what you did. <laughs> that could be because <laughs> she kind of does that. But she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. And she called her husband and said, please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. She's not going to wait for him to come. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. He's clueless about what she wants to do. He's just like, there's not a religious thing going on. <laughs> Why do you want to go see him? That's all right, she said. She's very communicative. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. Interesting, it's at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant, Gehazi, look. There's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? This is, again, right? I think he's kind of a warm person, right? He sees her coming, and his first thought is, oh, man, I hope everything's okay. Why is she coming? There must, something's not right. So he's like, go, go see her and ask her if everything's okay. Everything is all right, she said. I think she doesn't want to tell his servant. She wants to tell him. That's what I think. She doesn't want to tell the servant guy here what's going on and then trust him to tell Elisha. She's like, you know, Elisha made this promise. Elisha's the guy I want to talk to. <laughs> so everything's all right. Just tell him I'm coming to see him. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. And Gehazi came over to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone. She's in bitter distress. He said, he, and again, this is that warm Elisha. He says, just wait. It's okay. She's clearly distraught. I know she said everything's okay. She's clearly in distress. But the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Just once, just once, I would like to meet a modern-day so-called prophet who is willing to make this admission ever. Because most of the time what I hear from self-proclaimed modern prophets is they will never say, I don't know. <laughs> there is something very honest and humble about this moment where Elisha is like, man, at a moment when I really wish I knew what was going on, I have no idea what's going on. She won't tell me, and God won't tell me. <laughs> but I can see a something. Something is bad. And of course, of course in his mind, he's already acknowledged it. He's thinking it's the child. Right? It's the family. It's something. And it, yeah, that would make sense. He's like, oh, I hope it's not the child. I know how much she wanted that. Oh, what is happening and she says, did I ask you for a son, my Lord? She said, interesting. She did not. We even pointed that out. This was not a request she made. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? She said, didn't I tell you don't raise my hopes? 
Elisha said to Gehazi, take your cloak into your belt, take my staff in your hand and run. Don't greet anyone you meet. And if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. I'm not sure if they just skip things she said or if this is just an indicative of how fast Elisha moves. She didn't even tell him what happened, but he's like, clearly the boy's dead because of the way she's talking. And I don't even need to know what happened. I don't even need to, I don't care. We're going to take care of this. Go now. Now, notice, is Elisha running? (laughs) Because that is not how Elisha do. (laughs) Right? And what's the, what's the, so, so as you start to think it through this, the ingredient nearby is a staff. He says, take my staff and run and lay it on the face of the boy. And don't stop for anything. Just go, go now. Run to the boy and place the staff. The implication, and I'll tell you why I think this is the point, is that she is supposed to go with him. The mother and Gehazi are supposed to go together. And his intent is, this is part of her response of faith, right? Think about times Jesus does this sometimes, like with the centurion. He says, go home, your son's healed. And the centurion goes home. (laughs) And on the way home, he gets met by a messenger who says, your son is healed. It's kind of like that. Elisha is saying, trust that God will do it by the time you get home. Just go. So he sends, run to the boy and place the staff. Elisha, again, does nothing. He just gives commands. He says, go, do this. And the result? It's nothing. Let's read. (laughs) Don't greet anyone you meet. And if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face. But there was no sound or response. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us. Maybe Elisha was wrong. Maybe he was guessing. Maybe he was like, take a staff, lay it on his face, and God's going to do is going to heal the boy. And he was just wrong. But there is another possible scenario here. What if it's because she is one of the people who did not do the thing that he asked her to do? And not that he's going to punish her for this, because he's still going to heal the boy. But she is going to learn the value of trusting God. Because she does not go. Gehazi runs, and she says, I'm not leaving you. And why would she say that? Because who is she trusting to heal her boy? Elisha. Elisha. Mm-hmm. Who does Elisha want her to trust to heal her boy? God. 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 Okay, but what's the fact that she's the exact same language Elisha? It's interesting. That's interesting. And again, I don't think Elisha is scornful or angry with her. And we see that in what happens next. This is not the end of the story still. This story has layers. <laughs> But, and I don't know for sure if that's why. Yeah, she uses a phrase of loyalty much like he used with Elijah, for sure. I will never leave you. But it does show she's, I think what it shows is, I didn't want to tell the servant my boy was dead, and I don't want your servant to heal him. I need you to come heal him. Now, is it because she's angry with him? Maybe. <laughs> is it because she really thinks he's the only one who can? Maybe, and that's a little more problematic. But what is his response when she says, I won't leave you? Yeah. He says, okay, let's go. (laughs) So again, he's still gracious. He still cares. He still wants to heal the boy. But it is a little bit like perhaps possible, possibly she's missed out on a a, a minor one, like we all do, not something that is irreversible. But she's missed out on a little opportunity to see God do something and know that it was God and not Elisha. But that's okay. Elisha's going to be considerate of her position, of her despair, of her desperation, and yeah, of the fact that he's probably, that he's partly responsible for this. 
right? I mean, she has a point. She didn't ask him to do this. So he follows her, and he goes with her, and this is what happens. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha. So as he's on the way, Gehazi comes back, and he's like, uh, this doesn't happen a lot to you, <laughs> but it didn't work. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, the boy has not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy laying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. And Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. And he did. And when she came, he said, take your son. And she came in and fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. And then she took her son and went out. So we do actually see that in this case, Elisha does become the instrument. Right? So the thing that's near at hand, when the staff doesn't work for whatever reason, is Elisha himself. And he's not going to resist that either. It's not like Elisha is so set on his pattern or his formula. He's like, well, I can't do this. No, he'll do it. And in fact, when he does, he's very proactive. This is like, he's putting a lot of energy into this. It doesn't even make sense. Again, it doesn't really make sense what he's doing any more than putting salt in a bowl of water does. It's tempting to think he's doing CPR, but it's not. <laughs> All right. <laughs> What's that? I said I would look at that. That it shows her that Elijah did it. Well, this is maybe why he didn't want to do it this way originally, because it, it would yeah, lead to that potential concern. Like yeah. But again, here's a couple things. He's not going to let that prevent him from doing the good he can do. And this is what I think about God too. God wants us to trust Him, but sometimes He does nice things for us in ways that we take the wrong way. And God still does them for us. He also closed the door, so... It's true. She didn't see everything he did either. And I do, I do think it's interesting that he still calls an action from her, even when it's over. He says, take your son. Well, I mean, he could just say, here he is! You know, it is like there's still a moment where she needs to come. She needs to... She, he comes to her and says, take your son. And there's that moment of, why do I want to come see my dead son? where she has to walk into the room and go, oh, he's alive. So there's still a, a call from her. It, a little bit here. Take your son. Do what needs to be done. Obviously, Elisha is laying on the boy. I think it is a concession of sorts. I think it is, you know what? I'm going to meet you where you are. You're not ready yet to simply accept that this can just happen. So that's fine. I'll let God move you forward in your faith in other ways at other times. But you will see God do an amazing thing. Yes. Well, I was just thinking maybe it makes more of a connection for her because she originally didn't think that Elijah, like God could provide um, a child for her from Elijah anyway in the first place. And then so by it happening this way, I mean, maybe that kind of... But this is why I think he's more concerned about it because she blames him for giving her a son, but it's not his fault. Who gave her a son? God, God. God did. Elisha didn't give her a son. Elisha, for all his wanting to give her a gift, did not persuade God to do something like this. It's not like Elisha went to God and said, hey, it'd be just awesome. I think this you should consider doing this. Right? <laughs> Ultimately, this is all from God. 
God put it on Elisha's heart to do something nice to her. God put it on Gehazi's heart to know what it was. God put it on Elisha's heart to make the promise. He wants her to know it was from God, but when she blames Elisha, he sees that the problem is she thinks it's him. And I think that's why he initially doesn't. It's not just his pattern. It's that the pattern makes sense <laughs> because he wants her to see it's not me and I will not bring him back to life. But again, I think part of the message in this is that even in all that, for him, you still do what's right. And you still love people. And you still help them. And if, they, if he's not able to help her in her faith, in this case, with someone he's so close to, with a situation where she, there's, there's nothing to be gained by withholding it from her. She's already kind of missed the opportunity for that, that sort of faith moment. There's nothing great to be gained by withholding the miracle from her that God wants to do. So he goes ahead and does it. I think it's not perfect, in a sense. I think it, it might be harder for her to see that it's God and not Elisha at this point. But Elisha's okay with that and God's okay with that because God is gracious. <laughs> and even when we're confused, he still does good things for us. In fact, I think this happens all the time. We think it's our job that gives us security and we think it's our, our, you know, our, our intellect that has gotten us where we've gotten. And all the time we think it's things that isn't God. <laughs> but God doesn't take it away because we're confused about that. He just tries in other ways to teach us. No, it's me. So Elisha's pattern is about teaching people that it's about God, but I think he's just a guy who wants to help also. And there's no violation here of a law. It's just not as helpful to her faith, perhaps. I, and I say that, but obviously seeing your son resurrected is going to impact your faith. <laughs> it's not like there's nothing happening here. I just think he's going to have to work harder in other ways to make sure that she knows that it's God and not Elisha. That's all. That's all. By the way, she comes back up. She's a recurring character. So we'll see more about her in a little bit. Uh, we'll go just a little bit more and we'll stop. Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was famine in that region. And while the company of prophets was meeting with him, he said to his servant, put on the large pot and cook some stew for these prophets. And one of them went out into the fields to gather herbs and found a wild vine, and picked as many of his scores as his garment could hold. And when he returned, he cut them up into the pot of stew. Though knew, no one knew what they were. That should have been a warning <laughs> sign. I mean, I would think that as an agricultural society, you, you know, if you don't know what it is, you don't put it in the stew. That's true. That's true. It also might speak to their desperation, though, right? It also might speak to their desperation. But yes, you're probably right. Why is no one else eating this gourd? Huh? Okay. When he returned, he cut them up into the pot of stew, though no one knew what they were. And the stew was poured out for the men. But as they began to eat it, they cried out, Man of God, there is death in the pot. Now. <laughs> I don't know exactly what this means. I mean, they're correct. There's, the idea is there's poison. This is bad. But what, how did, did someone die? Is that what happened? Did they like watch the guy next to them eat it and die? And they're like, whoa. Because if he did, it doesn't tell us that. <laughs> or they're prophets and did they just sort of, God was like, stop. Well, yes, but they were prophets, so why did they put it in in the first place? Because they're just student prophets. Oh. <laughs> it's during the school. It doesn't mean that, Yes. As Elisha pointed out, not knowing what was going on with the widow, or not the widow, but with the mother, 
That, right, they don't always know everything. But it does feel like God at this moment is probably the one who said to them, there's death in the pot. And they just repeated it. Man of God, there's death in the pot, right? Although, because they that stopped. sounds like, I mean, that sounds weird to us, but they did say that about the water too. Sure, sure. Yeah, but the water, they'd seen things die. Yeah, anyway, and they could not eat it. So I, I, it doesn't sound like anyone died, is what I'm saying. I don't think that. Elisha said, get some flour. He put it into the pot and said, serve it to the people to eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. All right. This, is, this classically follows the pattern, doesn't it? What is the ingredient near at hand, which is small and irrelevant? Flour. There is no evidence that flour counteracts the whatever poisonous herb this was that nobody even knew what it was anyway. What are the actions he makes them perform? And they are the requesters because they're like, man of God, there's death in the pot. That's their request. What do we do? So what does he require them to do? And and serve it to the people. Yes. Get some flour and serve the food. Talk about an act of faith. He's the one who put it in the pot, though. Yeah. And this is interesting. He often asks people to get things and then puts them in for them. He did that with the water, too, right? He said, got the water, and then he put it in. He gets, has them get the flour, and then he puts it in. He did not do that with the oil, but he does do that with some of these other things. So he has them get the flour. They watch him put it in the pot, but then he's asking them to trust him. And ultimately not him, but God. That this is going to be okay. And it's interesting to me that the story ends with there was nothing harmful in the pot. The implication is they ate it, but it doesn't actually say that. And I just... I have this picture of a few people who are just like, no. (laughs) You first. (laughs) And they missed out because there was nothing harmful in the pot, so they didn't get to eat. Maybe they changed the first bowl. Well, I like that too. Again, he could have done that. He could have taken the first sip. But again, it's part of his, he's, he's not only doing miracles, he's teaching people to trust God. He's building their faith. He doesn't want to just take a bite of it for them. He, these are prophets. Their standards are higher. They should know. Mm-hmm. He's like, you eat it. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds a little Jim Jones that way, but it was not. <laughs> it was not. They did live. That I think there was nothing harmful in the pot. We know they did live. Okay, let's go on. Uh, adds flour to the pot. Yes, that's the little work as possible that Elisha does. He adds the flour to the pot. And then the stew is cleansed, and there's nothing harmful in it. A man came from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Pretty easy. And also, this is, rem- this is foreshadowing. Jesus does a very similar miracle. Which, by the way, remember... I mean, you won't. I'll try to remind you. But remember that when we get there. A lot of the miracles Jesus does, they have echoes. People know when he does them. They're like, oh, that's what Elijah did. Oh, that's what Elisha did. Oh, that means Jesus is important. Because <laughs> he's not doing random miracles. He's doing stuff that, that we know prophets did. So it's not, a, it's not an accident that he does this same miracle that Elijah did. And he does it like 50 times grander, right? Um, but what's the ingredient near at hand? 20 loaves, right? So 20 loaves feed 100 people. Jesus takes five loaves and feeds thousands of people. So, you know, Jesus does want to make a point too about who's, who's better at this. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so 20 loaves. What are the actions to be performed by the requester? Give it to him. And this is the way Jesus does it with the apostles too, right? He's like, you feed them. And they're like, how can we? He's like, just do it. <laughs> okay. So yeah, so the, the action, give it to the people. What's Elisha's part in all this? Instructions. Yeah, he just tells them what to do. <laughs> he just tells them, do it. And what's the miracle? They all get to eat. Leftovers! Thanksgiving. <laughs> he does. He does. And he does do that sometimes with his instructions, right? Like with the woman, with the jar. He jars. He did tell her what would happen. With his prophets, he didn't say the stew is good, but I think they assumed that when he said serve the food. They think they did believe he wasn't trying to kill him, all right? Oh, man. All right, we're going to do Naaman quickly because he is so, he is kind of the classic of all of this. And I love this story. And it follows this pattern precisely. And it, it makes the points really strong that we've been seeing. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. So remember, Aram is one of the outlying people that occasionally was attacking Israel. And the, the commander of the army, this is a big, big, important role, right? This is a powerful, important person. In fact, you could argue he is basically, only the king is more empower, powerful than he is. And frankly, in this day and age, you can argue whether he's more powerful than the king. Because he leads the army, and if he wants to take over and oust the king, he usually can. <laughs> right? So he's a big, powerful man, and he knows it. Okay? He knows it. But he's got a desperate need. Now, Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. I'll let you wrestle with why the Lord's giving him victory. But again, basically, anytime anybody wins anything, according to the Israelites, it's because God did it. <laughs> right? So it's really, that's all it's saying. And what it's really saying is, he's a, he's a great man in the eyes of his master, but really it's God who did anything good. Right? He thinks he's won all this, but really it's God who's done it. But he's a great man to his master's eyes, and I think what we learn is in his own eyes as well. Highly regarded. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, leprosy actually in the scripture, and particularly in the Old Testament, it, it really is, is a catch-all phrase for a lot of different things. Leprosy today is actually a nerve disease which causes you to not feel pain. And because you can't feel pain, you hurt yourself. And when you hurt yourself, you get infected without knowing it, and then your skin falls off. That's what leprosy is today. That's what it was sometimes for them. But it could be any number of skin diseases like that. But if it is the leprosy we have today, it's pretty bad. I mean, if you don't know what's happening, and you don't. I mean, imagine stepping, stepping on a nail and not knowing it and leaving it in your foot for days, right? Things rot. Things fall off. Your nose will fall off. Lots of times leprosy patients have no nose. Their nose just happens to be one of those things that gets infected. They don't know it, and it literally falls off their face. So it's very visible, and you can see why people would be very squeamish, okay? So he's a great man, but he's got leprosy, and it's affecting his whole body. Now, bands of raiders from Aaron had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of leprosy. So this is interesting. They capture this girl. She's the servant to him. She's, it's a little bit like a Joseph story in the background here because she's serving someone important like Joseph did when he was kidnapped, <coughs> right? Because she's, she's basically serving the second most important man's wife uh, in the whole kingdom of Aram. 
and she's smart, and she's heard of Elisha, and she says, you know, your lives could be better if you guys would consider going to the prophet in Samaria. Now, that's a big ask, because this is their enemies, <laughs> right? So Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said, and by all means go, the king of Aram replied, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Now, this is, what you, this is where, this is what seems appropriate to Naaman, and this is, you got to understand, this is his mindset. I'm an important man. If I need help from someone in Israel, I talk to the king, right? My king talks to their king, and they're going to send someone over here to help me out. That's what's in his mind. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. And the letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read this letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. So the king, probably Joram, he receives this message and he's like, they're just trying to pick a fight because I'm going to say no because I can't cure anyone of leprosy. <laughs> Which is interesting because the servant girl knew who could cure him of leprosy, but the king doesn't. <laughs> this whole story, everybody in this story we're about to read who's smart is a servant. And everybody in this story who's dumb is powerful. <laughs> now, I don't think that's the way of the world. I'm not saying all powerful people are dumb and all unpowerful people are smart. It isn't that way. But this story is making a particular point. Because Naaman, in his view of the world, powerful people are smart and servant people are dumb. And so he gets this information from a servant and he goes to a king and the king's like, what? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have that man come to me and he will know there's a prophet in Israel. There, is, there are so many layers to this little statement from Elisha. Mm -hmm. It's a reproof. It's a gentle reproof. Well, it's a subtle reproof, but it's a reproof. First reproof is, what is your problem? Why are you tearing your robes? This is an easy thing. Right? Elisha's like, I do this every day and twice on Sunday. This is not a big deal. Okay? God can do this. But the second thing is, look at the dig. Notice what he says. This man will then know there's a prophet in Israel. Who didn't know there was a prophet in Israel? <laughs> the, king. the king. Yes. <laughs> yes. He's like, come on. You may not know it. He'll know it if you'll just send him to me. Everybody else does. <laughs> yeah. Have the man come to me. But this means Naaman needs to come to Elisha. He's, he's a step down now, right? Now he's not dealing with the king. Now he's dealing with this guy who lives out on this compound <laughs> with a bunch of other crazy people. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots, right? He's coming in full force. And he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. So he stops at the door of the house. And there's a little bit of a standoff here. And I think Elisha's totally aware of it. Totally aware of it. Now, Elisha's true to pattern. He does what he would do anyway. He doesn't sort of involve himself. <laughs> but I think he also knows in particular at this moment, it's really important that he do it this way. So the man stands at the door. He's not going to knock on the door. This is Naaman. Naaman doesn't knock on doors. Naaman knocks down doors. Naaman stands outside and you come to him. And Elisha, the great prophet, should be honored to come help Naaman. But Elisha, the great prophet, doesn't even step outside of his house. Right? He sends a servant. Servants are dumb. 
He sends a messenger, a servant. Elisha sent a messenger to him. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Right? I'm not even going to see you. The doctor is not in. Just go take two Tylenol and call me in the morning. That's what it feels like to Naaman, right? He's like, what? And so Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely listen, listen to his description of what he thought would happen. This is his picture of how this great man was going to be treated. Naaman, this great man. I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. As, can you imagine Elisha ever doing any of that? No. That is so not the way Elisha has ever worked, right? It's not even just Naaman. He doesn't do that kind of thing. In fact, the only time he did anything like that was for the poor woman and her son. That's true. No, that's true. And I think the point here is just Naaman has expectations of how he should be treated. He's a great man. He should be healed in great ways. Right? And, and, and even this. He's like, I'm supposed to go wash in the Jordan? He says, are not Arbana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? I came all this way to be told to go wash in your stupid, stinky river? I've got the Mississippi, and you want me to go wash in the Rio Grande? What are you talking about? That's just dumb. Forget you. So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him. Again, who's setting him straight? His servants. <laughs> Does Elisha chase after him? No. Does no. <laughs> the king come to him? No. no. It's a servant. How humiliating, in one sense, for Naaman, that throughout all this, as he looks back on this story, he begins to realize every good thing that's happened to me has been a servant. I wouldn't even be here if it weren't for this little servant girl, this foreign servant girl. <laughs> Although, to his benefit, he did listen and come. Well, he's leaving now. Well, yeah, but I mean, to believe... <laughs> he came, yeah, he came to the king to get healed. His wife probably told him to do it. Name it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he had leprosy. She said, you're not touching me again until you're cured. Uh, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? See, they know him. They know him. If he had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? I mean, they're thinking, look, if he told you that you have to go scale a mountain and defeat this enemy and get this magic flower and bring it back to him like the Greek stories of Hercules, if he gave you those tasks, wouldn't you have done it? And Naaman's like, yeah. Because that's how great men are healed. <laughs> they aren't healed by bathing in the Jordan. <laughs> I mean, that's not a good story. How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? They're like, you would have done a great thing. Come on. What is this? What does it hurt you? So he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. And I want you to think about that seven times because this is like collecting the jars. It's one thing to let your servants talk you into going and dipping in the water one time. Right? But do you think that anything happens in the first six times? No. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't think he sees progress as he goes. I think he dips and he comes up and he goes, 
And he dips again, he comes up, and about the third or fourth time, he's tempted, right? He's tempted to think, this is stupid. People are laughing at me, right? Because people are watching. <laughs> this is stupid. But he does it. He does it. Because he is called to faith, and he does ultimately respond by faith. Mm-hmm. That nugget, like Meredith said, that did bring him out here, it, there's something there. Once he got his head on straight, he did try. He did, he did believe enough to do it. He positioned himself. And that's what it says. And it's amazing because we see that this is what Elijah, Elisha is doing because it doesn't just heal him. It actually converts him. You're going to see his faith changes entirely. So, as the man, he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. I get the sense it's better than it was before the leprosy, right? Like the wrinkles are gone. Freckles. Freckles are gone. It's like fresh and smooth. And maybe that's not a good thing for a warrior, but nonetheless, that's, that's what it is. Maybe they call him baby face from now on, but whatever. <laughs> Baldy. No, that's Elijah. Yeah. <laughs> then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God and he stood before him and said now I think this is a different Naaman it doesn't say exactly what happens but somehow he's talking to Elisha and I think that only happens if he goes to Elisha's door and he knocks and he humbly says may I talk to Elisha please mm-hmm. instead of standing out front with the chariots and horses and waiting for Elisha to come to him right it's right. a different Elisha I mean a different Naaman so Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God and he stood before him and said, now I know. And listen to what he knows because this is crazy. I mean, this is a big leap. When, you, when we see what Elisha is doing is trying to build people's faith, we need to realize that he uses the ingredients nearby at hand and the need that's there. And we may not see why this would lead to such a leap of faith, but that's the real miracle. And that's what happens here. I know that there's no God in all the world except in Israel. That's a big statement. Most time people would say things like, I know that your God is as good as mine. Or even, I know that your God's more powerful than mine. But listen to his statement. He's gone from, uh, from polytheism to monotheism because he dipped in the river seven times. Well, it seems to like, um, like I was thinking about like the kind of the respect and the pride and the humility between like, you know, the servants and the people in power. And it seems like he's just like kind of shifted like the authority. Totally. This is a humble Naaman. And Naaman's problem was his pride. Mm -hmm. And the leprosy was just a thing. His real issue was pride. (laughs) That's the miracle here. Now I know that there's no God in all the world except Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. He doesn't know. Now again, this is Naaman. He only knows one currency in life. He doesn't know how do you you respond in humility to this. You pay someone. (laughs) Right? I just, I gotta pay you. I don't think this is bad, but it does again show he's just coming from a certain world. And Elisha's not part of that world. (laughs) He says, uh, the prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. Why? Because I didn't do it. I think that's, again, this is an important point for Elisha to make. I don't think it's that Elisha would never take payment. I think it's an indication sometimes he might. But with Naaman, he knows this is an important distinction. I did not talk to you. I sent a messenger to you. I did not come dip you in the river. I asked you to do it yourself. I do not take payment because I did nothing. It's God. You are right to honor God. Don't pay me anything. As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, even the way he says it, right? Why am I not going to take anything? Because I'm just serving God. I am a servant of God, the way your servants served you through this whole story. Okay? 
And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Well, if you will not, said Naaman, please let me your servant. How interesting is that? Right? Okay, I get it a little bit now. I can't pay you, in a sense, making you my servant. Okay, that's fine. I get it. I'm going to try being a servant. Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. Now, it's a little weird that he thinks he has to make the offerings on the ground, but again, I think it's, I think it's right. I think it's from where he is as a young believer, it makes perfect sense, and it's a really noble thing. I am only going to worship the God of Israel, who seems to be only in Israel. So I want to take some earth with me so that I can worship the God of Israel on Israel soil. <laughs> now, again, it's no more confusing than the way most of us, when we first come to the Lord, think we have to do things. God only hears you when you pray on your knees, right? Some of us thought that when we first got saved, right? God only hears you if you pray to him in the morning. It's not as available in the afternoon or the evening. He's busier then. So we do things like that. But the point is, I will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any God but the Lord. That's a big, that's a big statement. And he's getting it. He's like, I get it. I don't need to honor you. I need to honor God. So help me do that. And then he says, but may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. He's thinking, I have a realistic logistical problem here. And that's that I am the right arm for the king of Aram. And he does not serve your God. And he's not going to serve your God. And he's going to make me go in the temple with him. And he says this. May the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimen to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimen, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. And I think that Elisha, through God's divine inspiration, knows the heart of Naaman and realizes this is not an excuse. This is a legitimate dilemma. And so what he says to him is, go in peace. Meaning, I think, yeah, God forgives that. God understands that. Worship him when you're bowing in the temple in Rimen, and you don't have to tell the king. Just don't worship that, that God. You can bow. God knows. <laughs> it's okay. We know that your faith has changed. Your heart has changed. Your skin changed, and that's the least of what changed. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? He asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. And when Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. Sure, he was doing this for Elisha. He sent the men away and they left. Now, this is terrible. I hope you understand how terrible this is. This is confusing to Naaman. Do you see that? Mm-hmm. After all this, he comes up and he says, Elisha changed his mind. He wants it. And Naaman's gracious. But, but in the back of his mind, he's got to be going, I thought I was understanding. But now it feels like, I don't know. It's, it's, maybe this is it's just weird. Yeah, it's just weird. I don't think a shipwrecked him necessarily. It doesn't indicate, but, it, but, it, but it's not good. You can see why this is bad. And Gehazi should have understood that. He should have known this is, this is bad. 
when he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. I've had conversations like this with some of my kids. <laughs> I wish I could say what Elisha said next. That would be awesome. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or accept clothes or olive groves or vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? Now, I clearly didn't accept all those things. It makes me wonder if he's already accepted some of those things, if this isn't the first time he's done this. And if Elisha's like, I know what you've been doing. I've been giving you some room, but you blew it. Now you blew it. Um, and the fact that he says, is this the time, also makes me think he's not, he's not setting a rule here. He's not saying we can never accept money for services we do. But he's saying this was not the time. This is destructive. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. I think it's interesting that God doesn't take the money away from him. There's no evidence that he takes it from him. He just gives him the other thing that Naaman had too. It's kind of like you take that, you take this with it. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Um, next week, we'll get to, we have a few more miracles of Elisha, but we'll stop there. But when we get to next week, we get to a story which involves four lepers at the city gates. And some people think, in fact, that it's Gehazi and his family. It doesn't say it is, but it's, it's a interesting story if it is. It doesn't have to be, but it, 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 it's interesting if it is. Um, because it does say you and your descendants, so it's like it's a family thing. So let's just wrap it up here. What's the ingredient near at hand which seems small and irrelevant? It's the Jordan River. To Naaman, he's like, that's dumb. I have better rivers where I come from. What are the actions that he's asked to perform? Dip seven times. Dip himself seven times. I'm sure he's thinking seven times. Why? That's dumb. This is, I've taken baths before. I'm not just dirty, I know. <laughs> Dunk yourself seven times. What does Elisha do? Nothing. Really? Very, very. He doesn't even talk to him. Right? Now, he does talk to the king and say, send him my way. Because again, he wants to help. He did send his right? And he sends the messenger out to tell him what to do. But that's it. He gives instructions, and he gives instructions through a surrogate. And why does he do it that way this time? Because he knows through the divine inspiration of God that Naaman's problem isn't leprosy. <laughs> Naaman's problem is pride. And he knows that Naaman could be converted. I mean, I think he sees. I can actually build faith into this Aramean. And that's the miracle. Now, I put here healing and conversion because that's the miracle. The miracle is the conversion. The miracle is that this Aramean, the commander of the army, now believes in only one God. It's the God of Israel. The Bible doesn't tell us, but can you imagine the implications for future battles? What happens when the king of Aram wants to attack Israel? <laughs> what does this guy do? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, is he thinking, I don't want to fight my God. <laughs> I don't want to fight the Israel where my God is. Is this part of the reason that Aram doesn't attack Israel for a while? Because every time the king brings it up, this commander's like... Uh, bad idea strategically. <laughs> I was there. The army was huge. I mean, it, it, again, scripture doesn't tell us, but the implications are pretty large. They are pretty large. It's kind of significant. So we see this pattern going forward in the next few stories of Elisha's, uh, some more miracles of Elisha. But this name and story has always just struck me um, because it, it, it shows how this pattern that he established, it kind of emphasizes why it's so important to Elisha to, to not just perform the miracle, 
but to do it in a way which builds their faith, to do it in a way which challenges them to say yes to God, rather than simply pleading for Elisha and having him do magic. And I think that says a lot for who Elisha is. And I think it says a lot for Elijah. I don't, none of this is to say Elijah did it wrong. Eli, Elisha is Elijah's protege, right? Mm-hmm. What he learned, he learned from Elijah. And he learned probably from, from the better part of Elijah, the post-depression recovered Elijah, <laughs> who learned some things about humility. Well, so I, I think a lot of this comes through that. I don't know if this is a thing or not, so I'll say with the other ones, but it, seemed, it seems like there's a big point about Elisha having a choice. And I wonder, like, with the other prophets, sometimes it just seems like, it's like, okay, go do this, go do that. I mean, maybe they do have a choice, but, I mean, it just seems I think like they do have a choice, but, I, but I, I hear you, and yes, it makes a special point of it. And I think that is whether, I don't know which comes first, whether that's cause or effect or what, but, but I do think that Elisha definitely reveals that in the way he deals with other people. He gives them that same choice, right? He does the same thing that God did to him. There's the mantle on the ground. Do I really want it? I got to pick it up. The rest of these stories, what are they if I don't pick up that mantle? I don't even get across the Jordan, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even get across the Jordan. I got to pick up the mantle. And, and he does do that with people. You got to get those jars. You got to get that salt. You got to get that flour. You got to dunk yourself in the river. You got to go with, with, with uh, my servant to, with my staff. You got to come get your son. Whatever. You, you, gotta, you gotta pick up the mantle. And it's always gracious. And it's always, I think again, he gives them what they need to do that. It's never a trick, right? If they need more information, he gives them more information. If they don't need as much information, he doesn't give them as much information. He's like, it's a famine and you're starving. Eat the food that I planned. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you need to know. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It was dead before. <laughs> Jeff. I mean, I think one thing is Elijah did do a lot of very public things. He did. So it may, it's almost a contrast to kind of where the people are. They've seen all these big public things. And I'm guessing God doesn't want to worship in the prophets. And sure. Absolutely. And I do think it is relevant that Elisha is one very significant difference from Elijah is that Elisha has this group of prophets that are following him around and they're watching what he does. And I think there's a part of him that also wants to leave a legacy which isn't dependent upon him. Maybe, in a sense, he doesn't want people spending three days looking for him when God takes him away. (laughs) Right? He doesn't want them to waste the time doing that. He wants them to be looking for God instead of looking for for Elisha and Elijah. You know, even some of that. You know, I think, I've been thinking about that recently. I'll just close with this. I'll tell this story really quickly. Thank you for listening to The Journey. Discipleship Matters is a ministry started by David McGill to help pastors, particularly of small and medium-sized churches, to achieve discipleship communities. To learn more about Discipleship Matters, visit davidmcgill, M-E-G-I-L-L dot com.